Chapters seventy five and seventy six of the Way of All Flesh. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rhonda Fetterman. The Way of All Flesh by Samuel Butler. Chapter seventy five. In the month of September, eighteen sixty, a girl was born, and Ernest was proud and happy. The birth of the child, and a rather alarming talk which the doctor had given to Ellen, sobered her for a few weeks, and it really seemed as though his hopes were about to be fulfilled. The expenses of his wife's confinement were heavy, and he was obliged to trench upon his savings, but he had no doubt about soon recouping this now that Ellen was herself again. For a time, indeed, his business did revive a little. Nevertheless, it seemed as though the interruption to his prosperity had in some way broken the spell of good luck which had attended him in the outset. He was still sanguine, however, and worked night and day with a will, but there was no more music or reading or writing now. His Sunday outings were put to a stop, and but for the first floor being let to myself, he would have lost his citadel there too, but he seldom used it for Ellen had to wait more and more upon the baby, and as a consequence, Ernest had to wait more and more upon Ellen. One afternoon, about a couple of months after the baby had been born, and just as my unhappy hero was beginning to feel more hopeful, and therefore better able to bear his burdens, he returned from a sale, and found Ellen in the same hysterical condition that he had found her in in the spring. She said she was again with child, and Ernest still believed her. All the troubles of the preceding six months began again then and there, and grew worse and worse continually. Money did not come in quickly, for Ellen cheated him by keeping it back, and dealing improperly with the goods he bought. When it did come in, she got it out of him as before, on pretexts which it seemed inhuman to inquire into. It was always the same story. By and by a new feature began to show itself. Ernest had inherited his father's punctuality and exactness as regards money. He liked to know the worst of what he had to pay at once. He hated having expenses sprung upon him which, if not foreseen, might and ought to have been so. But now bills began to be brought to him for things ordered by Ellen without his knowledge, or for which he had already given her the money. This was awful, and even Ernest turned. When he remonstrated with her, not for having bought the things, but for having said nothing to him about the money's being owing, Ellen met him with hysteria, and there was a scene. She had now pretty well forgotten the hard times she had known when she had been on her own resources, and reproached him downright with having married her. On that moment the scales fell from Ernest's eyes as they had fallen when Townley had said, No, no, no. He said nothing, but he woke up once for all to the fact that he had made a mistake in marrying. A touch had again come, which had revealed him to himself. He went upstairs to the disused citadel, flung himself into the armchair, 
and covered his face with his hands. He still did not know that his wife drank, but he could no longer trust her, and his dream of happiness was over. He had been saved from the church, so as by fire but still saved, but what could now save him from his marriage? He had made the same mistake that he had made in wedding himself to the church, but with a hundred times worse results. He had learnt nothing by experience. He was an Esau, one of those wretches whose hearts the Lord had hardened, who having ears heard not, having eyes saw not, and who should find no place for repentance, though they sought it even with tears. Yet had he not, on the whole, tried to find out what the ways of God were, and to follow them in singleness of heart? To a certain extent, yes. But he had not been thorough. He had not given up all for God. He knew that very well he had done little, as compared with what he might and ought to have done. But still, if he was being punished for this— God was a hard taskmaster, and one, too, who was continually pouncing out upon his unhappy creatures from ambuscades. In marrying Ellen he had meant to avoid a life of sin, and to take the course he believed to be moral and right. With his antecedents and surroundings it was the most natural thing in the world for him to have done. Yet in what a frightful position had not his morality landed him! Could any amount of immorality have placed him in a much worse one? What was morality worth if it was not that which on the whole brought a man peace at the last? And could anyone have reasonable certainty that marriage would do this? It seemed to him that in his attempt to be moral he had been following a devil which had disguised itself as an angel of light. But if so... What ground was there on which a man might rest the sole of his foot and tread in reasonable safety? He was still too young to reach the answer. On common sense. An answer which he would have felt to be unworthy of anyone who had an ideal standard. However this might be, it was plain that he had now done for himself. It had been thus with him all his life. If there had come at any time a gleam of sunshine and hope, it was to be obscured immediately. Why, prison was happier than this. There, at any rate, he had no money anxieties, and these were beginning to weigh upon him now with all their horrors. He was happier even now than he had been at Battersby or at Roughborough and he would not go back, even if he could, to his Cambridge life. But for all that, the outlook was so gloomy, in fact so hopeless, that he felt as if he could have only too gladly gone to sleep and died in his armchair, once for all. As he was musing thus and looking upon the wreck of his hopes, for he saw well enough that as long as he was linked to Ellen, he should never rise as he had dreamed of doing. He heard a noise below, and presently a neighbor ran upstairs and entered his room hurriedly. "'Good gracious, Mr. Pontifex!' she exclaimed. 
for goodness sake come down quickly and help oh mrs pontifex is took with the horrors and she's orchard the unhappy man came down as he was bid and found his wife mad with delirium tremens he knew all now the neighbors thought he must have known that his wife drank all along but ellen had been so artful and he so simple that as i have said he had had no suspicion why said the woman who had summoned him she'll drink anything she can stand up and pay her money for ernest could hardly believe his ears but when the doctor had seen his wife and she had become more quiet he went over to the public-house hard by and made inquiries the result of which rendered further doubt impossible the publican took the opportunity to present my hero with a bill of several pounds for bottles of spirits supplied to his wife and what with his wife's confinement and the way business had fallen off he had not the money to pay with for the sum exceeded the remnant of his savings he came to me not for money but to tell me his miserable story i had seen for some time that there was something wrong and had suspected pretty shrewdly what the matter was but of course i said nothing ernest and i had been growing apart for some time i was vexed at his having married and he knew i was vexed though i did my best to hide it a man's friendships are like his will invalidated by marriage but they are also no less invalidated by the marriage of his friends the rift in friendship which invariably makes its appearance on the marriage of either of the parties to it was fast widening as it no less invariably does into the great gulf which is fixed between the married and the unmarried and i was beginning to leave my protege to a fate with which i had neither right nor power to meddle in fact i had begun to feel him rather a burden i did not so much mind this when i could be of use but i grudged it when i could be of none he had made his bed and he must lie upon it ernest had felt all this and had seldom come near me till now one evening late in eighteen sixty he called on me and with a very woebegone face told me his troubles as soon as i found that he no longer liked his wife i forgave him at once and was as much interested in him as ever there is nothing an old bachelor likes better than to find a young married man who wishes he had not got married especially when the case is such an extreme one that he need not pretend to hope that matters will come out all right again or encourage his young friend to make the best of it i was myself in favour of a separation and said i would make ellen an allowance myself of course intending that it should come out of ernest's money but he would not hear of this he had married ellen he said and he must try to reform her he hated it but he must try and finding him as usual very obstinate i was obliged to acquiesce though with little confidence as to the result i was vexed at seeing him waste himself on such a barren task and again began to feel him burdensome i am afraid i showed this for he again avoided me for some time and indeed for many months i hardly saw him at all 
Ellen remained very ill for some days, and then gradually recovered. Ernest hardly left her till she was out of danger. When she had recovered, he got the doctor to tell her that if she had such another attack, she would certainly die. This so frightened her that she took the pledge. Then he became more hopeful again. When she was sober, she was just what she was during the first days of her married life, and so quick was he to forget pain that after a few days he was as fond of her as ever. But Ellen could not forgive him for knowing what he did. She knew that he was on the watch to shield her from temptation, and though he did his best to make her think that he had no further uneasiness about her, she found that the burden of her union with respectability grow more and more heavy upon her, and she looked back more and more longingly upon the lawless freedom of the life she had led before she met her husband. I will dwell no longer on this part of my story. During the spring months of 1861 she kept straight. She had had her fling of dissipation, and this, together with the impression made upon her by having taken the pledge, tamed her for a while. The shop went fairly well, and enabled Ernest to make the two ends meet. In the spring and summer of 1861 he even put by a little money again. In the autumn his wife was confined of a boy, a very fine one, so everyone said. She soon recovered, and Ernest was beginning to breathe freely and be almost sanguine, when without a word of warning the storm broke again. He returned one afternoon about two years after his marriage, and found his wife lying upon the floor insensible. From this time he became hopeless, and began to go visibly downhill. He had been knocked about too much and the luck had gone too long against him. The wear and tear of the last three years had told on him, and though not actually ill, he was overworked, below par, and unfit for any further burden. He struggled for a while to prevent himself from finding this out, but facts were too strong for him. Again he called on me and told me what had happened. I was glad the crisis had come. I was sorry for Ellen, but a complete separation from her was the only chance for her husband. Even after this last outbreak, he was unwilling to consent to this, and talked nonsense about dying at his post, till I got tired of him. Each time I saw him the old gloom had settled more and more deeply upon his face, and I had about made up my mind to put an end to the situation by a coup de main such as bribing Ellen to run away with somebody else, or something of that kind, when matters settled themselves as usual in a way which I had not anticipated. CHAPTER 76 The winter had been a trying one. Ernest had only paid his way by selling his piano. With this he seemed to cut away the last link that connected him with his earlier life and to sink him once for all into the small shopkeeper. It seemed to him that however low he might sink, his pain could not last much longer, for he should simply die if it did. He hated Ellen now, and the pair lived in open want of harmony with each other. If it had not been for his children, he would have left her and gone to America. 
but he could not leave the children with Ellen, and as for taking them with him, he did not know how to do it, nor what to do with them when he had got them to America. If he had not lost energy, he would probably in the end have taken the children and gone off. But his nerve was shaken, so day after day went by, and nothing was done. He had only got a few shillings in the world now, except the value of his stock, which was very little. He could get perhaps three pounds or four pounds by selling his music, and what few pictures and pieces of furniture still belonged to him. He thought of trying to live by his pen, but his writing had dropped off long ago. He no longer had an idea in his head. Look which way he would, he saw no hope. The end, if it had not actually come, was within easy distance, and he was almost face to face with actual want. When he saw people going about poorly clad, or even without shoes and stockings, he wondered whether within a few months' time he too should not have to go about in this way. The remorseless, resistless hand of fate had caught him in its grip and was dragging him down, down, down. Still, he staggered on, going his daily rounds, buying second-hand clothes, and spending his evenings in cleaning and mending them. One morning, as he was returning from a house at the West End where he had bought some clothes from one of the servants, he was struck by a small crowd which had gathered round a space that had been railed off on the grass near one of the paths in the green park. It was a lovely soft spring morning at the end of March, and unusually balmy for the time of year. Even Ernest Melancholy was relieved for a while by the look of spring that pervaded earth and sky. But it soon returned, and smiling sadly he said to himself, It may bring hope to others, but for me there can be no hope henceforth. As these words were in his mind, he joined the small crowd who gathered round the railings, and saw that they were looking at three sheep with very small lambs only a day or two old, which had been penned off for shelter and protection from the others that ranged the park. They were very pretty, and Londoners so seldom get a chance of seeing lambs that it was no wonder everyone stopped to look at them. Ernest observed that no one seemed fonder of them than a great lubberly butcher boy who leaned up against the railings with a tray of meat upon his shoulder. He was looking at this boy, and smiling at the grotesqueness of his admiration, when he became aware that he was being watched intently by a man in coachman's livery, who had also stopped to admire the lambs, and was leaning against the opposite side of the enclosure. Ernest knew him in a moment as John, his father's old coachman at Battersby, and went up to him at once. "'Why, Master Ernest,' he said, with his strong northern accent, "'I was thinking of you only this very morning,' and the pair shook hands heartily. John was in an excellent place at the West End. He had done very well, he said, ever since he had left Battersby, except for the first year or two, and that, he said, with a screw of the face, had well nigh broke him. Ernest asked how this was. "'Why, you see,' said John, 
I was always main fond of that lass Ellen, whom you remember running after Master Ernest, and giving your watch to. I expect you haven't forgotten that day, have you? And here he laughed. I don't know as I be the father of the child she carried away with her from Battersby, but I very easily may have been. Anyhow, after I had left your papa's place a few days, I wrote to Ellen to an address we had agreed upon, and told her I would do what I ought to do. And so I did, for I married her within a month afterwards. Why, Lord love the man, whatever is the matter with him? For as he had spoken the last few words of his story, Ernest had turned white as a sheet and was leaning against the railings. John said my hero, gasping for breath. Are you sure of what you say? Are you quite sure you really married her? Of course I am, said John. I married her before the registrar at Letchbury on the 15th of August, 1851. Give me your arm, said Ernest, and take me into Piccadilly, and put me into a cab, and come with me at once, if you can spare time to Mr. Overton's at the Temple. End of chapter 76 Recording by Rhonda Fetterman